Well, amen. Thank you, team. Proverbs chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. In several uh, different ways this past week, God caused me to do really what we just saying, to stop, <laughs> to pause and to ponder His work and His ways in three different kind of areas, in creation, in my own life, and in the history of humanity and salvation. And all of it just kind of tied together for God to remind me, what we're just saying, we, we remember to remind me of this one truth. And it's the truth I firmly believe he's leading me to remind you of today as well, and it has to do with his word on the screen, trust. To trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. If you do that, he'd make straight your paths. Doesn't mean it would be easy. Doesn't mean life's going to be simple. Doesn't mean there's not going to be a lot of sorrow and pain and struggle and maybe even suffering. But he'd make straight your paths. And before we get to that word trust, I want to start with the different ways in which God caused me to stop, to pause and to ponder his work and his ways in creation in my life and in the history of humanity and salvation. Let's start with his work and his ways in creation. This past week, we, uh, we went to Ponga City. As you know, that's where my family is, and we kind of rotate, you know, what family we spend with um, on Thanksgiving. And so we were in Ponga City this year. And so to get there, we, we took the north route, the back roads, through Pond Creek and Lamont. If you don't know where that's at, it's just north of here, these little towns, you know, just going over there to Ponca City. And when we got to Lamont, on the other side of Lamont, like a flood of, of a memory came back to me, and it took me back like two decades. Because around two decades ago, we were coming back from a trip, a vacation with my family, my immediate family, and we were on this long road trip coming back home, and we took the same route. We went these back roads. We went through Palm Creek and Lamont, and when we got to the other side of Lamont, kind of the northeast side of that, my dad, here we are, the, the van is full of people, my siblings, myself, my mom, my dad, and, and it had been a long day. It's dark outside, and my dad pulls over on the side of the road. The, it's in the middle of nowhere. The, there's nothing, if you know where that's at, there, there's nothing there. Um, and he pulls over, and he says, get out of the car. Like, okay, who said something, right? We're, we're in trouble here. Like, what is going on here? Why are we getting out of the car? What happened? And so he says, no, no, no get out of the car. And we're all just kind of fumbling about. We're grumbling. We're mumbling, you know, as we like to do. And so we get out of the car, and my dad almost begins on this little sermonette. I'm like, what is going on? He starts talking about the busyness of life, the noise of life, the distractions of life. And he says, you know, we don't do this often enough. And we're all sitting there saying, what? It's cold. It's dark. We don't know where we're at. It's been a long day. We just want to go home. What are you talking about? He says, look up. And we looked up. And we could just see, it's not quite this picture, but we could just see the stars. It's one of those crisp, cool nights. Air was thin. I mean, you could see about anything imaginable, it seemed like, up there in the sky. And we're just like, wow. The beauty, the, 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 the massive sight in which we were looking at. 
And to see all this, and this is my dad's point, and to think about the God behind all this. I mean, even as a child, and especially now, it was just downright humbling to behold his works, to behold his beauty and creation. I mean, think about what the scriptures say. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The universe, that word in essence means the cosmos, the universe declares the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And Psalm 8, the psalmist says, listen, when I look at your heavens, when I get out of the car and I just stop and I pause and I ponder and I look up at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Man, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Let's put this in perspective what the psalmist is saying. Let's look at the ocean. Last week, I don't have a picture of the ocean. Okay, we'll just sit there. Let's put this in perspective. Last week we looked at the Pacific Ocean, right? You remember this? We looked at the Pacific Ocean, but let's look at the oceans in general so we can get an idea of what the psalmist is saying. 71% of the earth's surface is covered by the ocean. 71%. It would take 36 United States of America. If you took the land of the United States of America and you dumped it into the ocean, it would take 36 of them to fill the ocean. If you took all the water and the ocean and you dumped it onto the land of the United States, it would cover every square inch and it would reach 82 miles high. The ocean represents 97% of the earth's total water content. It represents 99% of the world's biosphere, the spaces and places where life exists. Land is only 1%. The ocean contains the longest mountain range. It's 10 times longer than the longest mountain range on land. And we talked about Challenger Deep last week. From Challenger Deep's bottom to the surface of the water, and this is the deepest known spot on earth, Challenger Deep, from its bottom to the surface of the water, is six times deeper than the Grand Canyon. Now that's massive, that's impressive, almost unimaginable, but let's go a little bigger, because if the ocean's that big, how big is the earth? All right, now we're caught up here. How big is the earth? The circumference of the earth, the planet in which you and I live on, is roughly 24,900 miles. That's the circumference of the earth. So to put that in perspective, if you were to get on I-40 and travel across Oklahoma, it's 331 miles. So... That would be like driving across Oklahoma 75 times if you drove the circumference of the earth. Just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, 75 times would be the equivalent of driving the circumference of the earth. But let's go a little bit bigger. Let's take the sun. The sun, as we know, is a large, very hot star, and it's very far away. And if you were traveling at a normal aircraft speed, it would take us... 19 years to get there. If you were in a car driving 60 miles per hour and didn't stop one time, it would take you 177 years to arrive at the sun. That's how far away it is. 
And hear this, the circumference of the sun is roughly 2.7 million miles. The circumference of the earth is 24,900 miles. The circumference of the sun is roughly 2.7 million miles. You could take 109 earths and just lay them across the face of the sun. You could fit 1 million earths inside the sun. A million you say, well, what in the world does that look like? This is what that looks like. You see that basketball? Picture that as the sun. You see that little green pea on the left side of the screen? Picture that as the earth. That is the difference. The green pea is the earth. The sun is very big and massive. And they say that there are 100 to 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's the galaxy in which you and I live. And 10% of those stars are like the sun. So meaning that's like 10 to 40 billion sun-like stars in our galaxy. And according to NASA, the sun is simply an average-sized star in our Milky Way galaxy. An average size. But again, let's go bigger just thinking about the Milky Way galaxy. And think about it like this. The speed of light. How fast light travels. Light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. So according to NASA, a traveler moving at the speed of light would circumnavigate the equator approximately seven and a half times in one second. Just going and going and going and going and going in one second. By comparison, a traveler in a jet aircraft moving at a ground speed of 500 miles per hour would cross the continental U.S. in four hours. So if you traveled at the speed of light, you could travel around the whole face of the earth 108,000 times in four hours. And the same amount of time it would take those residents in L.A. flying to New York. Now, according to the experts, it would take you 100,000 years to go from one side of the Milky Way galaxy to the other if you were traveling at the speed of light. And conservative estimates show at least 100 billion galaxies. And we thought the ocean was big. When I look at your heavens, when I consider, when I study, when I step out of the van, when I stop, when I pause and ponder away from the noise and the busyness and the distractions, when I look at the work of your fingers, like a painter before an empty canvas, he painted the cosmos into existence. As Psalm 8 says, when I look at your heaven, the work of your fingers, sorry, it goes on. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So once again, God caused me to pause and ponder his work as I'm traveling on the other side of Lamont, beginning to think about that moment where I stepped out of the car and just stopped and looked up and considered. Paused and pondered 
his ways in creation. He brought me once again, as he often does, to a moment of just adoration and all of who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and even in just creation itself. And it's overwhelmingly humbling, but it doesn't stop there for me. Because he also caused me to pause and ponder his work and his ways in my own life. So there we were sitting at the dinner table, like many of you did this week, with family or friends or at, with whoever, and you, you were sitting at a table, and this is what we did. We sat at a table with my parents, my older sister, her husband, and their family, my little sister, her husband, and their family, my brother and his wife and their kids couldn't be there, but everybody else was there gathered around this table. And I remember thinking, looking at, you know, especially from my parents' perspective, these nine grandkids they have, seeing their kids all grown up and married and so on. I just remember thinking about everything that had to come together at the right times, at the right places, with the right people, the right variables to bring about this gathering, to bring about this family even, to bring about this legacy that was gathered around this table. I'm going to stop to think just how close we were for this gathering, this family, this legacy to have never happened. And you've got to go far enough back to understand what I mean. And we could do this with your family. We, we, we could look at a, a, a thousand or a million different variables or situations or people with this. But just looking at one example with my family, you've got to go back close to 40 years ago. My dad was fresh out of high school in West Texas. And an opportunity came about for him to go to New York on a mission trip. He debated about it, almost didn't go, but he ended up deciding to go last minute. And he goes on this mission trip to New York. It looks different. The people are different. The culture was different. Everything about it was different than West Texas. And he stayed there for a summer. And while he was there, he met a woman named Patricia Baker. She's from that area. She was different in every respect from him and where he was from. But they began to date. And at the end of the summer, she too was young, fresh out of high school. These two, he asked her to marry him. And these two said yes to that. They both decided, yes, let's do this. And so here they were engaged to be married. So he, at the end of the summer, goes back to West Texas. She stays in New York. Weeks go by, a couple months go by, and she is now going to West Texas to visit, but her purpose in going to visit was to end the engagement. She decided in that couple weeks and couple months that she didn't want to get married. She had a whole life ahead of her. She could do anything she wanted to do. She didn't want to get married to a guy from West Texas. So she's literally flying to West Texas to put an end to it, to say it's off, we're not getting married. But that didn't happen. For whatever reason, she didn't do it. And the two of them, young, naive, not having a clue of what the next day held, they got married. My dad would graduate West Texas, and then he would be recruited to Conoco in Ponca City. That's how we ended up in Ponca. And here we are four decades, close to four decades later, and they've had four kids and they're still married. And as I'm sitting around that table, I, I, I looked back and I just thought about that for a moment. I'm like, if you take that away, you take them away meeting, the decisions that were made with that, you take them away from even coming to Ponca, I don't exist. 
My siblings don't exist. My kids don't exist. My sister's kids don't exist. My brother's kids don't exist. We're not gathering at that table. There is no family. There is no legacy around that table. And it was mind-boggling me to think about because that's just one person, one couple, one instant. And I thought about how amazing it is how God works, how he can introduce the impact of one person, one couple, a decision, an event, a circumstance, a variable that changes everything. That brings about a gathering, a family, a legacy that otherwise would not have come about. I mean, it's amazing, as the scriptures say, we can make our plans, but it's the Lord who determines our steps. And we could do that with your family. We could do that with my grandparents, great-grandparents. We could do that with your grandparents and great-grandparents. We could just go on and on and back and look at all the variables, all the decisions, all the people involved to bring about even this gathering right here today. And that led me to pause and ponder the work and the ways of God in the history of humanity. So what he had done in my family, but on a much larger scale, and how that all ties into salvation. And I'll give you one example. And it comes in the book of Ruth. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, you you know that it opens up with during the times of the judges, or during the period of the judges. What happens is is the book, book, book of Ruth focuses in on a specific family during a specific time in history for a specific reason. The book's events and the people occurred during the time of the judges. So remember, we looked at this last week. You have Abraham, the father of the Hebrews, the father of the Israelites, right? You have Abraham who had Isaac, Isaac who had Jacob. Jacob's name is, Jacob is given the name Israel, and Israel has these 12 sons, these 12 tribes of Israel. And so one of those 12 sons is a name, or a boy named Joseph, And Joseph is loved by Jacob, gives him a coat of many colors. And Joseph's brothers, they betray him. They they sell him into slavery and so on. He ends up in prison, and it's a really tough, difficult life. But we see that God is with Joseph the entire time. Long story short, Joseph is raised to power in Egypt. Basically, second in command, right on the level of Pharaoh himself. Raised to power. And during that time, his family ends up moving down to Egypt because there's a famine in Israel. And so they move down to Egypt, and Jacob sets them up really nicely, and they, in a way, live happily ever after. Until Joseph dies, that generation dies, and time moves on, and a new Pharaoh comes to town. And he hates the Israelites, this family that's left over there in Egypt. And he ends up enslaving them for hundreds of years. And then comes a guy by the name of Moses. Moses is born during a time in the culture in which the Pharaoh told the Hebrew midwives, if you see a Hebrew boy born, kill him. That's the time in which Moses was born. He escapes that and ends up being raised in the house of Pharaoh. And God uses Moses to deliver his people from slavery. He uses the ten plagues, right? We remember this story. And eventually, the Israelites cross the Red Sea and they enter into the wilderness, And there they wander for 40 years. 40 years they're wandering. And finally, they get close to the promised land. It's not Moses who leads them, but it's Joshua who leads them into the promised land. And you get the story of Jericho and the battle of Jericho, right? And then walking around the walls, and the walls come tumbling down. And you get that whole story. So you're reading the book of Joshua, and the Israelites go into the promised land that God promised Abraham hundreds of years before. And in a way, they take possession of it. 
almost all of it, but they take possession of it. And everything goes really well, and, and they begin to live happily ever after. But then Joshua dies, and that generation dies, and a new generation comes about, and they don't know the things that God did. They turn against God, and they begin to live like the nations around them, and thus they began to do evil in the eyes of God. And as a result, God would bring about these other nations to overtake them, and things would get really, really bad for some time, and they'd cry out to God for help, and God would send them a judge to deliver them. They would turn back to God, and things would go well for a time, but then they would once again do evil, rinse and repeat, and this is what you see in the book of the Judges. And so in the days of the judges, there's darkness. There's seemingly no leadership. There's confusion. There's hopelessness. There's war. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. It's bad. And I'll give you an example, and it comes in Judges 19, one of the most difficult passages you will ever read in Scripture. There's a Levite who's traveling. He stops off at Gibeah for the night. And this guy says, hey, come stay at my house. You don't want to be out here at night. And so he comes and stays at the house, and he has a concubine with him, and they go stay at the house. And as they're at the house, this crowd of men gather around the house. They began to beat on the door, give us that Levite who came to town. We want him. It's a similar image of what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah. And the old man of the house says, no, 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 don't take this Levite. Instead, take my daughter and this man's concubine instead. It's horrific. It's terrible. And they refused. They said, no, 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 we want the Levite. They want the man. But the Levite, what he does is he throws the concubine out to the mob and then shuts the door. And for the entire night, they abused her. So much so that at at the dawn, she comes and just falls on the doorstep of this guy's house and she dies right there. The man sees her, the Levite, picks her up, takes her home, and cuts her up into 12 pieces, and then sends a piece to every tribe of Israel. And it starts this war, and it's, it's horrific. Long story short, that's the state of the culture during the time of the judges. That's what it's like. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. And that concluding summary statement reveals that the state of the culture, the state of the people of God, was in a terrible, terrible, almost wicked mess. But at the same time, it hints at a king who is to come, a hero perhaps, who will right the ship, who will save the day. And then during that time, during the period of the judges, so you get this big summary statement of the period of the judges in the book of Judges, but then you get the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth, during that time, focuses in on one family. And we're introduced to a woman named Naomi. And her husband and their boys. And there's a famine in Israel at this time. And we think, you know, inflation is bad. Going to the grocery store and coffee costs a couple dollars more than what it normally does or something of that nature. But imagine a famine going to the grocery store and there being absolutely no food. And the environment is so bad that you can't even grow crops at your house. This is what a famine was. So Naomi and her husband and her boys were desperate, and so they left to go to Moab. This is huge, this decision they made to go to Moab. So Moab, in a way, at that time was an enemy to Israel. 
But where do the Moabites come from? You've got to go all the way back to Lot. You remember Abraham, the father of the Israelites, he had a nephew named Lot. Lot was saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt because she looked back on Sodom and Gomorrah when God was bringing judgment on it. Well, right after that, Lot is hanging out, living in a cave with his two daughters. It's wicked, it's evil. His two daughters get him drunk on two consecutive nights and sleep with him. The older daughter gets pregnant through this and has a son named Moab. This is the birth of the Moabites. Ruth is a Moabite. Her very life and existence can be traced back to an incestual relationship hundreds of years before. And so here's Naomi, her husband, and her boys. They leave Israel to go into the land of Moab. And it just so happens there that her husband dies, her boys die. But before they died, the boys died, they married a couple Moabite women. One of those being Ruth. And Ruth comes back to Israel after the famine's over. She comes back with Naomi back to Israel, and they are poor. And so on one day, Ruth just so happens to stumble into the field of Boaz. She just so happens to stumble into the field of Boaz, who's their kinsman redeemer, and they end up meeting through this, fall in love, get married. And you think about all the variables, all the decisions, all the events that went into this meeting and this couple. But they get married, and through them they had a son named Obed. Obed had a son named Jesse, and Jesse had a son named David. And then you can follow David's line all the way to Jesus. In the days of the judges, there's darkness, there's no leadership, there's confusion, there's hopelessness, there's war, but at the same time, there's a glimmer of hope. That the hero, the king, is coming. And it's amazing how God works. How he introduces the impact of one person, one couple, one decision, an event, a circumstance, a variable, even that which is evil. And changes everything. Brings about a gathering. He brings about a family. He brings about a legacy. He brings about a king. He brings about a salvation. Because even in the midst of such darkness and confusion and hopelessness and war, even when there is noise, even when there's busyness, even when there's distractions, even when there seems like there's no leadership, even when it seems like everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes, God is at work. His ways are constant. You see this in creation. You see this in your own life. You see this in the history of humanity and salvation. He has shown, proven, over and over again to be God who is in control, who is sustaining it all. As the author of Hebrews says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is constantly at work. And when I just sit, and I'm still, and I stop, and I pause, and I ponder his work and his ways in creation and in my life and in the history of humanity, I'm reminded that my thoughts are not his thoughts. I'm reminded that my ways are not his ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, 
So are my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord. My thoughts than your thoughts. So in taking into consideration who God is, his ways, his work, look at creation. Look at your own life and the fact that you're breathing right now and the why. Look at how he's worked throughout the history of humanity to bring about salvation and redemption. What's the one truth that God reminded me of this week when thinking about all of this? It's that in our days, there is darkness. There's seemingly no leadership. There is confusion. People are doing what's right in their own eyes. There seems to be hopelessness. There is war, just like in the days of the judges. There is noise. There is busyness. There is distraction. There is a sense of, man, is God really in control? Is he really working all this out to his good and his will? Is he really at work in all of this? The point was this. Let us stop. Let us get out of the car. Let us be still and know that he is God. Let us look up and trust in the Lord with all your heart. Even if you're in a famine, even if things aren't going your way, even if you think God is not at work in your circumstances or events or decisions or the relationship of your life, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not part of it, all of it. Don't lean on your own understanding. Consider his ways. Consider his creation. Consider his work. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. And if you do that, he will make your paths straight. There's not a fear we have. There's not an enemy we have. There's not a burden, a trial, a suffering. There's not a decision. There's not a situation. There's not a variable that he is not at work in. He's constantly at work in creation in our own lives, in history. He's present. He's active. He's moving. He's God. He's in control. And even when the enemy means something for evil, God turns it for good. Look at the life of Joseph. Look at the life of Jesus. So as Paul would say, as we sang earlier, so rejoice always. So pray constantly. So give thanks in all circumstances. Because he's at work. He's God. He's present. He's active. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. Trust in the Lord. Stop and remember. Pause and ponder. Don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make straight your paths. So with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to invite the team forward. And some of us in this room, if we're being honest with ourselves, man, we have not been trusting the Lord. We've been leaning on our own understanding. We failed to appreciate God's presence, His power, His control. What God is calling us to do today is simply to stop, to pause, and to ponder, to remember.
to consider his work and his ways in creation in your own life and in the history of humanity and salvation. There's no accidents. There's no, well, that just happened by chance. He's he's God. He's constantly moving. He's constantly working. He's constantly active. And he can constantly take any decision, any situation, any circumstance, any person, any couple, any family, and bring about something spectacular and beautiful. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Yes, we might be in darkness. Yes, we might be in uncertain times. Yes, we might be seemingly lacking in this, that, or the other. Yes, there might be difficulty and pain and struggle, and everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. But the message is that God is still at work, and he's still God. And he's still giving us a king, a savior. So be thankful and trust in him. He'll make your path straight. It doesn't mean it's not going to be hard, difficult. It doesn't mean there's not going to be mountains and valleys, but he'll make straight your paths. So in this moment together, let's just stop. Let's just pause and ponder and be thankful. So stand with me now. As I pray, you can even come. If you need to come forward and make a decision, you come even as I pray. Father, we thank you for who you are your work in creation, your work in our lives, your work throughout history. May we be thankful. May we rejoice always. May we pray constantly. May we trust in you with all of our hearts. May we lean not on our own understanding. Our thoughts are not your thoughts. Our ways are not your ways. Let's just be still and know that you're God and be thankful. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we sing, you come.